All right, so we are going to start our study here of George Mueller's life. So the first question I think that we might want to ask ourselves is why study his life? Um, I don't think since I've been here we've done any kind of a biography, autobiography kind of thing. And uh, I think it might be something where we would ask ourselves why do this instead of maybe a book that seems like a more practical topic or even what we did talking through the book of Matthew, something like that. Uh, particularly given that in this case you have someone who was born a long time ago, who was born in 1805, so more than 200 years ago, and in a place that no longer really exists, at least not in the same way. Prussia is no longer a country. So, um, But why study his life? The main reason would be this. Mueller prayed, he studied the Bible, and he trusted God, and so his life is an example for us of what James 5 describes that the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. When we study biographies, autobiographies, records of people who've gone before us, the point of it is not to say that every single decision that they made is the right decision for us to make or that they were perfect in everything that they did because the reality is none of us are perfect. But the point is that there are people that God has used in remarkable ways that we benefit greatly from looking at the course of their lives. Um, and in my reading through the book, and in those of you who have as well, I just the, the consistency and fervency of prayer, which we'll talk more about a little bit later, um, is something that particularly stands out with regard to his life. So the first phrase or uh, idea that I want us to talk about was, he sa starts out and it says, My father, a tax collector, educated his children on worldly principles. So the question that I was thinking about in connection with this is, does the manner of education that you experience determine the course of your life? No. So um, this is on page 11. You can look at the book as we're going through this, but um, I did type out all the quotes, so you don't necessarily have to refer to the book. I just want to make sure that you guys have one uh, to read through at home. One other quick comment on this particular version. I didn't realize when I ordered this that this one is its a little bit abridged which is not entirely bad. I think it'll be easier to follow. I mean, uh, chapter 1 is 5 pages. Chapter 2 is 3 or 4 or 5 pages. So it's very, I think, a reasonable amount for people to read. Even if you don't read a ton, you can probably read 10 pages a week. And so from that respect, it's good. Uh, plus, it gets through some of the issues of some of the earlier translations of his works are a little bit harder to follow some of the language. Um, but you know, I read through it with the kids and they were able to pick up on most of the words. So uh, if you're reading like the ebook version, it might be a little bit longer than this, but um, they both get at the same basic ideas. So does the manner of education determine the course of your life? Jonathan, you said no. Any other thoughts on this? Bob? I would say it has an impact. Okay. But it doesn't. <clears throat> Okay. Okay, Rob. Education uh, doesn't have to be limited to a classroom, with, you know, high school, college. Yeah. School. Yeah. When he says his father educated us on worldly principles, I don't think he had strictly speaking school in mind. He's also talking about his family context and background too. So, uh, the reality is that those things do not determine, without an ability to change the course of our lives. But also, there's the reality that the influences that shape us early on have a huge impact for the rest of our lives. 
And so we have to sort of balance those things and recognize that God, through His work, can change us and do remarkable things, even if we've had less than ideal situations, but we will probably have more or less struggles depending on those, those background kind of things. Uh, it's interesting, in one of the editions of this that I'm reading, the, the editor specifically made a note of the fact that when you look at the outcome of his life, the fact that his father taught him a worldly outlook and the fact that he started out his life in a lot of wicked ways, God still did remarkable things through his life anyway. And so we have to balance those things because it's easy, I think. We might have a right view of sanctification, but it's easy for these sort of perfectionistic ideals to creep in and say, well, if your life doesn't look like this, there's no place for you of service in the church. That can go too far. Case in point would be, um, you know, let's say there's some prominent pastor with a huge ministry who commits adultery. There are some people who say he can never again serve in any kind of teaching ministry. I'm not necessarily convinced of that, but I do think it shouldn't be the next week, right? So there's a balance in these things. In the same way, the fact that Mueller starts out his life uh, as a thief and a spendthrift and committing immorality and all these sorts of things doesn't mean that God can never use him, but it also means God's not really going to use him as long as he persists in that way of life, right? And all that was happening before he was a believer, which is a whole other topic. But uh, just this idea that the manner of education doesn't determine the course of your life, but it does greatly affect it. At age 20, I obtained permission to preach in the Lutheran church, but I felt as truly unhappy and far from God as ever. How is it possible to be even a preacher of God's word and yet not truly know him? Okay. Do we have any examples of God using wicked people to speak his word in the Bible? Satan. Satan. Okay, who else? Balaam, right? Balaam's like, hey, give me lots of money, and he ends up saying what God wants him to say anyway, because God basically constrains him to do it, right? Um... Caiaphas, okay, unintentionally prophesies about Jesus' death, okay. Judas. Judas, okay. Yeah, so, you know, sometimes, uh, yeah, I mean, we have this reality of someone fulfilling God's plan and purpose while clearly being wicked and all these sorts of things. Um, Mary, there's a handout on the table there if you want to follow along. Um, yeah, so we have all these examples in the Bible of people who are wicked, and yet at some point or another, people would assume this person belongs to God, is a representative of God, God actually uses that person in some way, all of these examples. Yeah? It almost seems that there are more cases, both in the Bible and in life, that it's more common that somebody grew up wicked, and then God changed them, and then used them, than they grew up righteous and stayed that way their entire life. Not to say that the latter isn't desired, right? but it just seems like that's less of an occurrence. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> in the same way that I think 
at, at some point, maybe a hundred years ago, it was kind of a given that someone would have a stable family life as part of their background, and now it's more of a given that they won't um, and becomes unusual. But yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, I think another thing, another contributing factor to this is not just the fact that we see examples of it throughout the Bible and throughout history, but the reality that if we begin to equate skill and knowledge, like Retta was pointing out, with righteousness or qualification, uh, if you notice in the list of qualifications for pastors and deacons, what are they almost exclusively about? Character. There's one brief comment about desire, wanting to do it is a good thing. Almost all of it is about character. None of it is about the degrees that a person has, right? Now, um, when it comes to the subject of degrees and qualifications, if someone has no knowledge, either diligent study on their own or with someone else, like a mentoring kind of thing, or, or some basic acquaintance with themes of the Bible, there's a variety of ways to get those things is my point. If you don't have any of that structure, there is a higher likelihood of you teaching things that are false, right? So if you don't have any concept of the fact that Psalms was written for the people of Israel in the context of the theocratic kingdom, and if you take something that talks about material blessing in the Psalms and you pull it over to today and you say this is an absolute promise to someone not, who's not an Israelite, not living in the theocratic kingdom, living in the United States, this is, usually it's not that theological, but someone could potentially have that sort of misunderstanding and arrive at so the health and wealth gospel makes sense, right? So there needs to be a degree of knowledge of truth if you're going to teach people because of the stricter accounting that James talks about and because of just the dangers of teaching heresy. But those things are no guarantee that you in fact even know God, right? Because you can know all those things, you can have been in a good home, you can have gone to church all your life, and you may still not know God. And that was his experience. He was connected with a kind of a state church, but it was, as we'll see later, basically just a job for him. Later, a little bit later, after he's done all these terrible things, and it's interesting the sort of things that he considers to be terrible things, like I went and traversed about the fields with my friends. Um, and I think the, the reason that he saw that was not because going on a hike is bad, but because his, um, is basically he's, he's getting ready for some sober thing, and then he's just basically doing whatever he feels like in the context of it. He's not taking any of it seriously, it was his point. And then he's also doing things that are clearly sinful, like getting drunk and stealing and all these kinds of things. I now resolved to change my lifestyle for two reasons. First, because unless I reformed, no parish would choose me as their pastor. And secondly, without a considerable knowledge of theology, I would never earn a good living. Well, that kind of touches on what we were just saying. What was his goal? It was to make money and to make sure that he had a job. So what ungodly motivations might lead you to give an outward appearance of following after God? You want to have a good reputation, right? Okay. What else? Retta? Right. What else? What are other ungodly motivations, uh, Devin? Okay. 
you want to get something out of it. In his case, it was a job. Other people, maybe they want to get married. Okay. Rob? Okay, yeah, some, some idea of being deceitful and proud. And the problem with this is, from the outside, it can look like someone is genuinely falling after God for a decent period of time. I think the, the phrase that Paul uses about Demas haunts me from time to time. He says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. But if I recall correctly, earlier he accounts him as a fellow worker. So how do we explain the difference? The reality is, and I think theologically we'd have to say ultimately, when it comes to the end of his life, if Demas had never repented, we'd have to say it seems like he never really knew God, right? But there are points along the way where it looks like he's following God and then it looks clearly like he's not. The reality is that our hearts are deceitful. We can be deceitful. We can be proud. We can put on a front for other people. Uh, when it comes to the context of our church, I think that we have to have a balance between saying every single thing we have ever done wrong because the goal is to have a confessional booth that's just dispersed among the congregation, right? That's an ungodly twisting of Scripture. But when James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed, there is an issue or a reality like we talked about with church membership and church discipline of dealing regularly with sin and not acting like it doesn't exist just because we're part of the church. Because to the, to the extent that we refuse to acknowledge ourselves as sinners in need of God's grace, pride and covering up of sin is the natural consequence. Pride that makes it harder and harder for me to ever admit that I need help and covering up sin that leads me to continually hide the things that are wrong in my life, connected with pride, but also connected with sort of a false ideal of what the church is supposed to be. If we go back to talking through the church membership, if the church is an outpost, if it's a barracks, if it's a training camp, if a soldier comes back from battle and, you know, has a huge gash in his arm and says, no, I'm good. I'm just going to shrug it off. How well is that going to go? I mean, if that gets infected, it's only going to get worse, right? In the same way, if we don't deal with sin in the very place that God has designed to a large extent for that sin to be dealt with, where else are we going to do it? So we have to be aware of these dangers of hypocrisy and... Uh, ideal Christian living such that we never acknowledge sin and then we end up in the same place that George Mueller was which is I teach the Bible or I um, I'm a good church member or whatever else but secretly there's all these things that we ought to be dealing with and I realize he was an unbeliever but the same thing applies I think to believers as well some of the same dangers Next quote, Nevertheless, the God whom I dishonored by my wicked behavior and unrepentant spirit had not given up on me. So, this is something that you could write out, or if you wanted to share, that's fine. Describe a time in your life in which you saw God not giving up on you, despite the fact you didn't deserve His mercy. Sandra? Okay. Okay. 
All right. Bob? I, don't, I know it's probably not exclusive, but obviously this is from the point of a believer looking before he was saved. Sure. So I think to a certain extent that's where it's more prevalent. Yeah. Because well, to a certain extent we deserve his mercy because we've already been saved, right? Okay. So just trying to compartmentalize the question of where in our lives would we be able to relate to that. But I mean, just for me, like growing up, not having a dad, not having that strong father figure, and then getting saved and looking back and be like, wow, I saw so many areas where God protected me from getting into worse things than I was already in. So that's kind of how I related yeah. to that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the reality is sinners don't deserve God's mercy. And saved sinners only deserve God's mercy because God has obligated himself to them, not because God was obligated by anything that they did, right? So I think that's a reasonable point. All right? A question to keep thinking about. Um, probably a good question to write an answer down to later. When it comes closer to the point of him starting to actually know God, he meets a particular guy and he says, For the next several days, I went regularly to this brother's house and we read the scriptures together. <clears throat> the Lord and, his, and the Word were so should be exciting to me that I could not wait until Saturday came again. Now my life became very different, although I did not give up every sin at once. And so the first question is, do you long for scripture? And when I say that, I don't necessarily, I'm not looking for you to say yes because it's the right answer, right? If you sit down and think about the course of your life and someone were to look upon how you spent your time over the last week, could you honestly say that you long for scripture in contrast to things like entertainment, work, um, family, um, any manner of things. And my point is not that those things are bad, like that we shouldn't work or we shouldn't spend time with our family or that it's wrong to ever do something like read a book or whatever else. But my point is, in contrast to all of those things, is your love for Scripture as great or greater? Is it something that excites you as much as saying, hey, I have vacation, I'm going on a trip? Or something that excites you as much as, hey, here's my sports team and I'm watching them on TV or listening to them on the radio and I'm cheering and I'm excited about it. Do things like spending time meditating on God's Word, discussing it with other people, gathering with God's people, is that as exciting for you as all those other things? Or in reality, is it more like, eh, not usually or not as often as it should be. That's not a guaranteed indication that you are an unbeliever. But for Mueller, it was. No interest in God's Word other than merely an academic exercise. Something begins to change, and now he's excited about God's Word with a guy that before he used to look down on and say, here's this guy who's a stick in the mud, who's boring, who we used to mock. Now he sees him as a brother and in a source of encouragement and all those sorts of things. Any quick thoughts on that part before we go to the other part of the question? Bob? So, I mean, 1 Peter 2, 
first verse he says, you know, we should crave it as a baby craves that milk. Right. And one question I always have is, does that have to look the same for everybody? Obviously, different education levels, different resources. You know, is is that desire always only? And you listed a couple different things, but is it always only expressed in reading the Bible by yourself, or are there other ways that it shows up? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say the thing that I'm getting at is: is there an excitement? or a disposition to be fervent about the things of God, whether that be gathering with God's people, witnessing to the lost, spending time in prayer, spending time, and I won't say necessarily just reading the Bible, but meditating on what God has said. The amount of time that is spent, the manner, the specifics, like when we went through the Habits of Grace book, the specifics are going to vary for people depending on the stage of life that someone is at, depending on some of the other things that you listed off, but the basic attitude of this is something that consumes my attention and I'm excited about and I'm fervent about, that's the thing that I think is often lacking. Because it's really easy for us to say, yes, I read my Bible, yes, I pray. We're going to talk more about that a little bit later, at least with regard to his experience. I kind of do the things that are expected of Christians but do I do them because I love God and I have a relationship with God? Or do I merely do them out of a sense of obligation or going back to the pride issue because I know that if I don't, people will think badly of me? Or do I act like I do them and I don't really do them at all, but I sort of put on a facade of doing them? And I think, depending on a lot of factors, we can be in all of those different places. I genuinely, fervently follow after God, and He is my ultimate focus. Um... There's um, uh, on the subject of of uh, biographies. Um, there was a guy who I think he died in 1982 in a plane crash. His name was Keith Green. Whether or not you like his music is beside the point. But he wrote a song and he basically says, "I pledge myself, my wife, my son to the gospel." And he basically said, "May there never be a time when I love her more than God." when I have my son's happiness as a higher priority than him serving and following after God, and when I, my life is more important to me than serving God. That's, I think, the sort of disposition that I think Mueller experienced and I think that's often lacking for a lot of believers, which is to say, God is the most important thing in my life, and I really mean that, right? Because we can say that, but when Jesus says something like, if you love all these things more than me, you're not worthy of me. Or when someone says, I'll absolutely follow you, Jesus. And Jesus says, you're not going to have a place to sleep. You're not going to have money. You might not have food. Are you still willing to do it? And they're like, eh, maybe not. I think it's really easy for us to not have a wholehearted commitment to God. And that's the sort of thing I think you start to see. Norma. Yeah, and there is that degree to which if we don't know God's Word, it's hard to be excited about something we don't really know at all, right? Okay? Yes, Sandra? Uh, 
Okay. Yeah. Or there's that verse in the Psalm of the Psalms that we looked at fairly recently where it talks about unite my heart to fear your name, something like that, along those same lines of what you said, Sandra. Okay. Um, the second part of that question is the thing about, he said, my life became very different, although I did not give up every sin at once. Is your life different knowing Jesus? What are some reasons this would be the case? What are some reasons this would not be the case? What does this look like? Bob? Your desires begin to change. Okay. It's less of a focus on me and more of a focus on him. And it is a, a gradual thing. While it does seem, I had this in a couple areas of my life, but not a ton. And I've heard other people say the same thing. At salvation, it's as though, especially growing up in you know, an un-Christian, non-Christian home or something, there's some areas where there's immediate overcoming yeah. other areas where you still struggle the rest of your life. Yeah. I forget who I was talking to somebody. I don't know if it was at the church or somewhere else, but I was talking with this person. I think he was saying, you know, I used to go out and get drunk, and that stopped immediately, but then maybe some issue like swearing or something took a lot longer to work through. You know, so along those lines. Okay. Um, Let's say that your life wasn't particularly wicked by human evaluation prior to conversion. Is there going to be as drastic of a change? I mean, if you, if you legitimately get saved at, say, age 8, is there going to be this huge transformation in the way there would be if you, I don't know, had been in and out of jail and whatever other kind of thing? No. I mean, but there still is a change. This is one of those things that's tricky because I think when we consider what the difference is between someone who knows Jesus and someone who doesn't, it's really easy for us to focus on, on external activities. And the reality is, there are a lot of activities that we do that are very similar. We all get dressed in the morning, we eat food at some point in the day, we go to work, you know, whatever. We drive in cars. So the point is not necessarily to say, I became a Christian, I'm going to give up electricity. Or I became a Christian, I'm going to now wear only drab colors, right? And, um, but the reality is the changes are more subtle, but they're not less real. Changes like, why am I doing blank? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, and we tend to focus on the whatever you do, but the context of the passage is, when you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The reason that we do it is not because food is an idol, but because we see it as a good gift of God to be enjoyed in moderation. It's not to say that this is something that is the whole focus of my life, but this is something God has provided for me, so I'm going to thank Him for it. We're still eating. You could still be eating the exact same food at the exact same times, but the disposition of thankfulness and of priority has changed, right? And that's really hard to see externally. You can see it if you have conversations with people over the course of time, but it's not immediately obvious just like looking at somebody near you in a restaurant, right? Or at home or whatever, okay?
The next one. The Lord help me. Uh, go ahead, Rob. This is irrelevant, but it, with the examples you're giving me, it, it's interesting that it, it's beginning to be the point if you're a good non-believer, <laughs> and you're going to drive an electric car, or you're going to do this, you know, all those things that you have to do. Sure. If, uh, sort of, if you're a good non-believer, it's, it's interesting as the opposite. I yeah, I hear what you're saying. So there are marks of adherence to progressive religiosity, right? You have to care about the environment. You have to care about women's rights, which means you're for abortion. You have to care about loving everybody, which means you can never tell anybody what they're doing is wrong. Those are the marks of a progressive, you know, um, someone who's committed to that way of life, right? And for us, it should be things that Jesus described, not so much do I tithe and pray and walk about quoting my Bible knowledge in a way that is proud, like the Pharisees did, but by this all people know that you are my disciples because you have love for one another. What does that look like in a tangible way? This person is in jail because of following Jesus, and I'm willing to go help that person, even if it draws the attention of the authorities on me. That's what it talks about in Hebrews. Or, here's a person who has a particular need, and I have capacity to meet that need, so instead of saying, I'm going to hoard everything I have because I'm fearful about what's going to happen in the future because of inflation or instability of society, or all those sorts of things, I freely give and share, trusting God that either He will provide what I need down the road, or if I starve to death, I'm going to be with Him afterward, right? So instead of a grasping, greedy attitude, it's an attitude of giving and sharing. And so those marks, there are marks of Christianity that I think correlate to, to what you're talking about there, Rob. Um, next quote, The Lord helped me to bear this difficult trial. When he basically said, I'm following Jesus now, I think I want to be a missionary, his father rejected him. Although I needed money more than ever before, I decided never to take any more from my father. It seemed wrong to let my father support me when he had no guarantee I would become what he wanted me to be, a clergyman earning a good living. Was his decision to not accept any more money from his father wise? Why or why not? Sandra? Okay, it allowed him to depend on God. Bob? I think... Okay, good. Rob, did you have something? No? Okay. Yeah, so there's, there's this, there's a perspective that would say, if I need money and this person has money, why would I do something to jeopardize the relationship because I need the money, right? Uh, that's a temptation for anybody who's teaching God's word, whose living is potentially connected with it, which is why some people, I think, have a right criticism to say, if you take money from anybody, there's always going to be this temptation to not say what God has said because you're worried about it affecting your ability to provide for your needs. Um, there is the reality of... Um, it, he was approaching it from, I think, sort of an ethical consideration. The reason my father is supporting me is so that I get this job and then I can support him down the road. If that's never going to happen, then I'm taking the money under false pretenses which is closely connected, I think, when it comes to the church. If we were to go out to the community and say, hey, 
we're going to do some sort of huge building project, which I'm not saying we are, I'm just using this as an example. We're going to do this huge building project, then so we're going to do a fundraiser, and we're going to ask lost people to provide money for the church to do what we think the church ought to do. I think there would be a parallel there of there, it then creates an obligation and an expectation and um, a lack of dependence on God to the point that Bob raised. Instead of saying, maybe God doesn't want us to do this because he hasn't provided the money for it, if we just say, oh, we're going to solve this problem by taking a government grant or doing all these fundraisers or those sorts of things, um, it's just something to think through, right? Um, and that will come up again later when he's trying to start the orphanages. Are we going to take money, or even I think when he talks about the Bible Printing Society he was connected with, are we going to do one that takes money from the outside, or do we feel like that's not a right way to approach it? I knew that the truth should be preached at all costs, but I thought it should be presented in a different form suited to the hearers. This is when he starts to get into preaching God's word. I remained unsettled about choosing a style of preaching for some time. Because I did not yet understand the work of the Spirit, I did not realize the powerlessness of human eloquence. Why is human eloquence powerless compared to or apart from the work of the Spirit? Tina? Because we're human and the Holy Spirit. Okay. Yeah, so there's a difference. We're not God, which means we don't have the power to do what? To change people, right? And so if we're depending on our skill in putting the words together to be the thing that changes people's hearts, we're always going to be disappointed because that's not what actually has the effect, right? Do you have something, Bob? Same kind of idea? Okay. Any other quick thoughts on this one? I think we would all kind of agree with this. Paul makes it pretty clear. We're not marketing the Word of God. Rob and I were even having a conversation about this. Um, we can be creative about the ways that we create opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. We can't be creative about the message that we're talking to them about, right? So if you are selling lumber and you find that people are not buying your lumber, you can say, well, I need to change something about the quality of the lumber, where I'm sourcing it. Maybe I'm going to stop selling lumber and I'm going to start selling steel. I mean, that's not a light decision, but I'm just saying you could change your product, you could change something about the presentation of it, all of that. When it comes to the gospel, you cannot change the message. We're ambassadors, we're not innovators, we are not marketers, and so the, the, the thing that we're presenting to people cannot change and the principles by which we present it can't be manipulative, right, Bob? This example just popped in my head. It's as though, as though we can only produce a placebo, no matter how much we try. Yeah. But only God can produce something that actually causes that benefit. Right. And along those lines, human eloquence for a while can produce an effect that looks like genuine conversion. Um. I don't, Charles Finney did a lot of terrible things for the, uh, the history of the church. He invented the altar call, and the problem with that is that people began to associate physical movement from one part of the church building to another with actual spiritual transformation. Uh, quick comment on that. In the present context, it is possible to create a service in which someone is emotionally manipulated to think that they are closer to God, walks right out of the service and goes back to some particularly grievous sin, 
and without any remorse whatsoever. And so if in Charles Finney day, Finney's day it was the, altars, the altar call, I mean, it could be the power of human eloquence, it could be just sort of a, a, a amping up of the way that, that we sing or whatever else. There's a possibility of that same sort of manipulative situation today. And it will happen if we don't trust in the work of the Spirit. Next quote, like many believers, I preferred to read the works of uninspired men rather than the oracles of the living God. Consequently, I remained a spiritual baby both in knowledge and grace. Should we read books in addition to the Bible? How much, how often? What do you think of his comment here about reading books instead of the Bible? Is that a problem today? What does it look like today, Bob? Okay. So, in a good book helps you to understand the Bible better. Sure. So, if I could add to that, oh, Evan, you have something? Yeah. Yeah, and his point was rather than, and I think that's the problem. If I would rather scroll through Facebook, some news site, podcast, whatever, instead of the Bible, there's a problem. Now, if you say, I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to do these other things in addition, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think our starting point should be the Bible. The place we land at the end of it should be the Bible. Uh, Our relationship with God is the ultimate focus of it. But... Um, the reality, I think, for many people is if we're going to pick between the two things, most people would rather pick up a self-help book that has a few Bible verses in it instead of do the hard work of reading the Bible, right? Or we would rather find a quote for the day instead of really meditate on a particularly difficult passage. And I understand this reality because um, there is something that if you say, and I'm not saying it's the only method to approach preaching, but if you say, we're doing these couple of chapters this week of this book, and we're going to do these couple of chapters next week of this book of the Bible, I've got to have something for you guys by the next Sunday, whatever it is. And so there are weeks when I have to, it does not immediately make sense how the passage fits together, and I have to wrestle with that. It would be a lot easier just to say, oh, here's a sermon outline from sermons.com that I downloaded, and so I'm just going to, and not do any of that work, right? And the same is true for each of us in our individual lives, whether you're teaching God's Word or not. It is much easier to do things that are the least possible amount of effort. And uh, if God's Word is what really changes people, if God's Word is truth from God, that's where we need to focus our attention. Other things, sure, supportive. Uh, along the way, but going back to God's Word. Last point here. I prayed often and generally with sincerity, but if I had prayed more earnestly, I would have made much more rapid progress in my faith. What's the difference between praying sincerely or often and praying earnestly?
Eric? Does it earnestly carry with it a sense of urgency? Okay. Urgency or expectation? Okay, Sandra? Same idea? Okay. Uh, yeah, so if I just pray, um, it is really easy to go through the motions of prayer, going back to all the other things we've been talking about, because I'm in a context of a group, and it's what people expect me to do, because I like how the words sound, and I'm trying to impress myself or other people, because it's what's expected of me, because it's just a habit that I've developed. But if I pray not really, expect, not really expecting God's going to answer, if I pray without any sense of urgency, I'm not really depending on God in the way that grows faith, which I think is the point that he's making. If there is a situation that I recognize I cannot change, which, to be honest, is most situations in life, right? I think, at least for me, 10, 15 years ago, I sort of had this idea that, that given enough effort, there's a lot of circumstances and situations that I could change to be different than they were, right? And the more that you go through situations that you can do nothing about, the more that you have to realize either you just stubbornly keep forging ahead or you say, I cannot change this, whether it be someone's spiritual growth, my own spiritual growth, God intervening in some dire situation, whatever it is, I cannot do this, God can, so who's the one I need to be talking to about? And God has the capacity to do this. And I think, and just a, one, you know, one last comment on this, because of the charismatic movement, I think churches like ours, who are coming from a different theological background, have tended to go way over here, right? Because someone said falsely, God's for sure going to do whatever, and it doesn't happen, we then get to a point where we say, well, God never does that thing. So, on some, the subject of something like miraculous healing, someone can confidently say, and I think perhaps illegitimately, I know for sure this is going to get better. But then when it doesn't, what do you do, right? The point is not that God has no power to miraculously heal people today. Because it seems that there are cases where that still happens. What's different between then and now, then being one of these major periods in which God poured out his blessings, like the time of the apostles, or Elijah and Elisha, or uh, Ahab versus the, or not Ahab, um, Elijah, uh, that was Elijah with Ahab versus the prophets of Baal, um, Moses in Egypt, or in the end times. The point is not that God can no longer work in that way. The point is, I think, that there is not specifically authorized representatives like apostles and prophets in the same way. And so our faith should not be lacking that God has the power to miraculously and remarkably intervene in situations. Whether that be the conversion of someone that we thought would never come to know Jesus, or whether it be something like miraculous healing. The, and so we should not let someone's excesses or false statements here mean that we don't expect that God still has the power. He's the same God who did those things then. He's going to do them again in the future. Bob? In light of that, in going through the study that we're doing on Wednesday nights, I am convinced that every single time we pray, we should be seeking God to be 
affecting something. Sure. Whether it's for a meal, whether it's before a service, what, no matter what it is, every single time our conversation with God should be seeking His work, His effect, His honor. Yeah. So see, God's word, His effect, His honor, that's a good way to sum it up. Okay. Let's pray. We'll wrap up uh, this part of it for now. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these ideas together. Um, I pray that you give us wisdom as we look at the good and the bad of George Mueller's life, that it would be a profitable study to uh, just see how we need to pray more or just even think about the way you want us to live more, and then to actually act on it, not just be in a cycle of continually thinking about it and not doing anything. And Just uh, pray that you would bless this. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So for next week, we'll just do the next two chapters, three and four, and kind of proceed through it that way.